Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Certainly one of the key issues uh, from the pandemic that we're dealing with right now are potential therapeutics. Uh, as well as obviously vaccines. And uh, we are really fortunate to have the good, good folks at Johns Hopkins University uh, with us to help us kind of get through some of this very difficult to understand news and try to put everything in perspective. Lauren Sauer, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins University uh, School of Medicine, joins us on the phone from uh, Baltimore. should note that the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP. Bloomberg Philanthropies in this radio and TV operation. So, Lauren, let's start with um, kind of the the therapeutics that are out there that people are working on that may help in the treatment of ongoing cases. Where, where, where do you where are you kind of looking right now? Yeah, there's been some exciting movement in the past few months on therapeutics um, for COVID nineteen, and the vaccine landscape is moving exceptionally quickly. Um, we know that the NIH just started Act 3, which is the, the third installation of their um, therapeutic trials. Um, they also have a large-scale clinical trial being set up to test antibodies and um, uh, monoclonal antibodies uh, for, for COVID-19, which is a, pr- a promising route that I think everyone is hoping um, will be an option, particularly as we wait for the development of a vaccine. On the vaccine side, I think we are seeing a lot of progress. Um, There's been a lot of conversations about the vaccines that are moving into phase three. Um, One of them is an mRNA vaccine, which would be the first of its kind if it makes it through phase three. But I think a lot of um, exciting potential opportunities uh, for progress to be made here in the next few months. Lauren, what's the headline that we're looking for? So, you know, I'm, presumably between now and then there will be, you know, a bunch of different headlines about the progress in all of these studies. Is there one which will suggest that perhaps we can start coming out of our houses again? I think the vaccine one will be the biggest one. Monoclonal antibodies are also really um, have the potential to be a really exciting development because they can be used in that gap between now and when we have a vaccine. Um possibly even prophylactically, so before people get um, COVID-19 or may have been exposed to COVID-19. And, and frankly, I still think that we can um, look towards, towards getting out more, getting uh, a little more social if we really um, hamper down on that, on that d- desire for people not to use masks. So if people buy into masks, if people buy into socially distancing while in public, then we can move towards that as well. And and so that is our best bet, those non-pharmaceutical interventions while we wait for the pharmaceutical interventions to come on board. Is there a sense, Lauren, that um, the safety protocols are, as we go through the testing here, I know we're accelerating the timeline aggressively in order to kind of meet the, the, the need, but within the scientific community, is, is there concern that maybe we're going too fast? Um, I, I think there's always a bit of a concern when the timeline looks so much faster than what all of us are used to. Um, there were some calls last week for um, skipping phase three of some of the vaccine trials, which is not appropriate, and I think we're, we're rightfully sort of shot down. I think everyone is looking with a careful eye at the FDA on the decisions and the concessions that they're making, but I think 
given the fact that the, the decisions they're making are public, we, uh, generally speaking, feel confident that the, that the pathway is being followed. It's just an all-hands-on-deck approach to make it as quick and efficient as possible. Lauren, I want to get your reaction to something. We just got word that Governor Cuomo of New York says all school districts in New York can reopen. So obviously it'll be you know up to each municipality, but the governor's point of view is that all school districts in New York, all around the region and all across the state can reopen. It's one of very few sort of decisions on the part of governors across the states for uh, school districts in the entire state to be allowed reopen should they wish to. Do you think it's the right decision? I mean, I don't want you to have to weigh in politically, but uh, if, you know, if you had children that were in the New York school system, would you be okay with them going back to school? Yeah, I'm not sure yet that I would be okay with them going back to school in person. I think the the pictures from earlier this week from the Georgia school systems um, were very concerning to a lot of us, and I think the um, the short timeline for print planning to do this safely and effectively and the lack of resources that have been given broadly across the country to schools to do it safely and effectively um, still weigh on us in public health very, very heavily. Um, I think New York is a place where if the transmission is well under control, then giving the permission to the local municipalities to do what they think is best is probably appropriate. That being said, I think the um, the key will be understanding what local transmission looks like in order to let local communities make those decisions and not forcing anyone back to opening in a, in a situation where they either don't feel they have the resources or feel that community transmission is too high to do it safely. You know, kids are getting sick, kids are dying, um, and so and they have family members who may be dramatically affected by a, a rush to reopen schools. So we, we have to focus on reducing community transmission in order to open schools safely. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about just a couple of weeks away here. Uh, school districts uh, in the state can reopen in September. This was one of the holdout states, if you like. We're still waiting for the decision from New York. And now we have that decision from the governor, Andrew Cuomo. Lauren, I want to thank you for your contribution today and always here on Bloomberg Radio and across Bloomberg Media. Lauren Sauer is professor of emergency medicine at Johns Hopkins University. And we really, really do thank her for coming on and explaining things to us in layman's terms. I do want to point out that many of the labor unions are not okay with schools reopening just yesterday. The new National Education Association president, Becky Pringle, said schools aren't safe to reopen. Time for another look now at the non-farm payrolls report at Stimulus and how it all is impacting the market. Let's bring in Marvin Lowe, Senior Global Macro Strategist at State Street, Boston. So Marvin, I think it's pretty well established now that fundamentals are just a little bit uh, distorted in terms of, you know, pandemic effects and that the market is sort of ignoring a little bit of that. How are you reading the intersection of economic data and markets today? You know what, um... You know, certainly after after the report, uh, we all took a step back to to really figure out how much of it um, we should care about and how much of it uh, we shouldn't. And as I took a step back, you know, I came to the conclusion that ultimately we're still a stimulus-driven market, and that really hasn't changed. So, you know, that that remains my overlay in kind of the way 
um, I'm looking at asset values. Um, the data is, is showing that there is some resilience in the economy. But again, you know, like you said, take it with a grain of salt because um, things change quickly and they have been changing quickly even since um, that employment uh, survey was taken a, a few weeks ago. Just some headlines coming across the Bloomberg. Again, the U.S. sanctions, Hong Kong's Carrie Lam, uh, the U.S. Treasury listing actual sanctions on its website. So we'll have more uh, information on that coming forward. But uh, again, rising tensions between the U.S. and China. So, Marvin, that's kind of where I want to go here. I mean, today is a day. We had the jobs number, of course, but we also have just another example here of rising tensions between the U.S. and China. How does that play into your calculus as you think about the markets? Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly it uh, it highlights uh, a risk that we all knew was going to um, get more intense, and and that's that's the risk around the elections. Uh, between the aluminum uh, announcement uh, yesterday around Canada, uh, again the the number of moves between the administration and China, uh, you know, this is going back to the playbook, um, and I think that we need to be um, aware that it's likely to continue and to get worse and. Um, you know, it, it certainly has idiosyncratic uh, aspects around certain asset classes and certain um, certain companies and asset types that we should be aware of. But it also is, you know, just political, you know, part of the political process in a very, very, um, you know, challenging election year. Marvin, what happens if this stimulus debate gets protracted? President Trump tries to sign an executive order. I mean, does he even have the capabilities of sort of directing government to pay out money like that? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm certainly not uh, not a not a political scholar from that perspective. Um, you know, I've read what I'm sure everyone else has read, and it's questionable whether or not he he does have that authority. Um, you know, I, I think that I think that a plan is. Go- I think that um, something's going to be reached fairly shortly. You know, within the next week, just because it needs to be in. While um, you know, political posturing is that they're still far away. There still is much more agreement uh, than we had uh, a week ago. If in fact they don't. Um, get anything done and kind of these executive orders um, are the only way to kind of get through it. I do think it adds a risk that the market has not fully absorbed into um, into where asset values are, are at this point. Um, you know, the administration's ability to do it is, question, is questionable. And if that kind of just uh, slows it down, that certainly is a risk. All right, Marvin, you know, the way I've kind of come to understand this with, as it relates to the Fed is the Fed has kind of provided a quote-unquote backstop for asset values, particularly riskier asset values. Where, given the, there is some level of uh, obviously Fed support here, where do you still see opportunities uh, in the marketplace? You know, I, I think I think kind of that stimulus and um, you know, fortunate or unfortunate, um, the um, financial oppression that's created by um, by real yields, the weaker dollar, gold, those trends remain out there because it is still a stimulus-driven market, and I don't think any of that's going to change within the near term. It's a fairly powerful trend, and um, even though we've got improvement in some of the economic data, it shows that we've still got a long way to go. And um, expectations for further stimulus, I think, is how you're supposed to think about approaching a market that's really been driven by uh, you know that factor primarily over the last couple of months. Marvin, what is the one question you are getting from your clients that you're finding difficult to answer these days? <laughs> 
You know, I think inflation is really one of the most challenging uh, discussions out there because there certainly isn't any now. Uh, we don't have the demand that's out there, but we've got real yields that are pointing to some real inflation concerns once we come out of this. Um, you know, are, are we are we structurally changing this economy with more fiscal stimulus um, to the point where inflation can, um, you know, come back in a way that we haven't seen in the last decade? And if that's the case, uh, you know, what's the implications, uh, you know, longer term for all, all, all asset values? I do think that real yields are expressing uh, a concern around inflation once we kind of normalize, um, you know, several years down the line, if you will. And it's been a long time since we had it. So, you know, portfolios just might not be positioned for that correctly. So, Marvin, in the next you know, 30, 30 seconds or so, I know you're a global macro strategist. Where are the opportunities outside of the U.S. right now? You know, certainly, certainly emerging markets um, have some of the best uh, real yields around the world. So I think that's supposed to be part of the thought process. Um, it very much is kind of sucked in into uh, the global risk on, risk off. Um, but when you're kind of thinking about how to generate income, again, once normalization occurs, I, I think that that winds up being a big part of that discussion. All right. And Marvin, you say outside the U.S., do you get to uh, emerging markets at all in this cycle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most certainly. It, it, is, it is the emerging markets that uh, will continue to have higher growth rates um, going forward. And, you know, they, they still do have um, interest rates that, that are, you know, relative to inflation that, that are positive. So um, that certainly is part of the discussion. I'm waiting to hear somebody tell me that it's okay to go into emerging markets, Marvin. Is it okay? Yeah. Um, you know, emerging markets certainly are, you know, it's, 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 it's a wide landscape. Um, we can see what's happening in Turkey right now, and, you know, uh, it, it shows the risk associated with it. But we do see, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of interest in, um, uh, in, in some of the Asian countries, uh, which have uh, done a better job dealing with the virus. So, yeah, you know, certainly, certainly um, doing your research and understanding what regions and what countries um, is part of the, the work that one needs to go. But, yeah, it should be something that's part of the equation. Interesting. I was just wondering here, as we think about emerging markets, Marvin, um, the issue here for is is so much is dependent upon China and a good relationship, or I guess a functioning relationship between the U.S. and China. How concerned are you about some of these tensions uh, that we see even today, uh, you know, with the, the Hong Kong Kerry Lam and, and some sanctions? Yeah, again, you know, I, I do frame it around the political discussion. Um, so kind of that's always in the backdrop. Um, you know, China has bounced back from, um, you know, the economic malaise uh, much quicker than anywhere else in the world. So uh, the fact that they have a handle on things, um, uh, you know, gives them a, a foot up. And from a regional perspective, that certainly helps, you know, kind of having having better relationships, obviously, with uh, the two superpowers is important in that discussion. But China, you know, China does have uh, the wherewithal to to respond and um uh, and and control its economy uh, that that you know can can withstand some of the uh, some of the rhetoric that's going on right now. Marvin, earnings season. Did you get surprised at all by any of the groups? I mean, you know, I'm not just talking big tech, although there was definitely the possibility of being surprised there for big tech. I'm also talking about things like you know the home improvement retailers. We've got Home Depot, the best performing stock in the Dow, for example, today. Where, where were you pleased? Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly, certainly, um, 
it, you know, it showed that if uh, if there was a thought process around what companies could do, uh, you know, could do well in this type of environment, uh, that, that to a certain degree did occur. So, um, you know, the fundamental work is, is, is encouraging because that's ultimately what we do, what we spend a lot of time on, you know, take a step back and looking and thinking through kind of a bit of the fundamentals. Um, what's been surprising to me, however, is given the uncertainty that's out there, um, forward expectations with earnings didn't really change much, which we could certainly take some comfort in, in that things haven't gotten worse, and or it's just still difficult um, to, to kind of come up with estimates. Uh, for the time being, um, it does kind of support the view that, you know, that companies uh, have a handle on, on what the next step is, or at least the analysts have an idea of where they think things might be going. Um, but, you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty out there, and, and we hear that from uh, from the CEOs. But, you know, at, at this point, it seems like the estimates are, are holding in there pretty well. Marvin, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, particularly on Non-Farm Payrolls Day. Marvin Lowe is a senior or I'm sorry, global macro strategist. Let me do that again. Marvin Lowe is senior global macro strategist at State Street, and he's coming to us from Boston, where State Street is based. Marvin, thank you. Now let's get to the Carrie Lam news and the sanctions news more broadly and bring in Nick Wadhams, national security reporter here at Bloomberg. In fact, he's in Washington, D.C. Nick, things seem to have escalated just a little bit overnight, but what's what's the point in sanctioning Carrie Lam, of all people? I mean, she's been the scapegoat for China, for, you know, the, the Communist Party. She's been the scapegoat for Hong Kong residents who thought that she might have their back. And now she's suddenly the, the scapegoat for the United States. Is she really the problem? Well, it's a great question. I think if you look at it from the U.S. side, what you, what you see is you have to put this in the context of a whole host of actions. I mean, it almost feels like a day does not go by now that we do not get one, two, sometimes three punitive measures announced by this administration against China. They had said for a long time that they wanted to uh, punish uh, China over uh, what's been happening in Hong Kong. And, uh, uh, you know, Carrie Lam has said she has no assets in the United States. She doesn't plan to travel here. Uh, so the sanctions will not have any immediate impact on her. But, um, you know, she, she is, uh, is symbolic uh, as, a, as a big target for this administration. And they have been telegraphing that they uh, would do this for some time. Uh, so it, it was seen as somewhat inevitable. And, you know, my impression in a lot of ways is that they are just really uh, smacking the hornet's nest in China with a big stick. <laughs> and this thing is not nearly over. So, Nick, how much of this from the U.S. side is political for the Trump administration positioning itself as tough on China ahead of the election or is versus kind of real statesman craft coming from Foggy Bottom about boy, this is a real coordinated strategy here to put pressure on China to get some of our stated uh, aims uh, achieved? Well, uh, I, I, if you look at the if the ultimate goal were to want China to back down in Hong Kong, to back down in Xinjiang, to back down in the South China Sea, uh, all of these areas on intellectual property theft, everything else, uh, taking a very, very aggressive approach like this is according to a lot of the administration's critics, really unlikely. Uh, this is not something where China's going to suddenly say, okay, hey, I'm going to back down. I mean, the administration theory of the case is, listen, we need them to uh, uh, take so much punishment that they change the calculus and stop doing stuff that admittedly everyone agrees they've been doing for a long time, ramping up uh, repression, um, continued IP theft, stealing American trade secrets. 
whatever it may be. But um, when you go so hard like this on so many fronts with with such a rate of intensity, um, it's it's hard to see how that achieves a a detente or any goal of coming to some sort of compromise with Beijing. So very, very heavy political element here. What's next? I mean, what can be done, you know, without serious retaliation on the part of the Chinese? And by the way, I'm sure we're waiting on that, are we? Yeah, I, it's it's fascinating because the, the the U.S. has come in so hard and so fast that I think you've seen China a little bit on the back foot. You know, how can it retaliate so quickly? And, of course, there are big things it could do that could really actually jeopardize the, the broader trade relationship and uh, the U.S. economy. They could dump U.S. treasuries, uh, for example. So it's it's this weird situation where you have all of these actions, all of this punishment, the back and forth, visa bans, uh, sanctions, things like that. But then you see both sides still holding off. I mean, if the U.S. were to sanction the big four Chinese banks, for example, that would be uh, – a whole other realm. China could dump treasuries. They haven't done that. Uh, new tariffs. Um, there are a, a lot of, like, you know, if they really wanted to bring out the elephant guns, they could, and they haven't done that yet, mm. which to me suggests there's there's a, a heavier political element here than actual substance. All right, Nick, what's the, the feeling within the State Department here? I'm sure there are dozens and dozens of career diplomats that have you know, built their careers on building relationships and building knowledge of China. Are they still in dialogue with their counterparts in China, despite all the headline risk that we see out there? Is there still kind of day-to-day, let's keep the channels open, let's try to work towards something? What's this day-to-day like? Uh, Well, I've spoken to a lot of people about this. Folks in China say it's gotten essentially totally stifled. It's it's impossible to have any of those real contacts with, with Chinese officials that are not uh, antagonistic, nothing like the the context that you would have had in the past. Uh, There's a real sense of gloom among folks. I mean, listen, there is no question that people believe a a strategic reorientation was necessary, that this notion of uh, increased wealth in China, making it more democratic and a more open society was not working. There, There needed to be a readjustment. But uh, the the real belief um, among the career folks is that listen when you when you come in so hard against China you're only going to make them angry uh, and this is not the way to actually achieve your ends this is you know these are diplomats they want to talk they want to uh, achieve a solution that that makes both sides happy and there's no room to have that conversation in the State Department right now. in terms of forcing ByteDance to get rid of its U.S. operations does that just open the playing field now for China to pick whatever U.S. company it wants, or all of them, and say, okay, but you're nationalized here in the in China. Right. I mean, uh, there's a lot China could do because uh, very arguably U.S. companies are much more dependent on China. Uh, in fact, are much more dependent on China than Chinese companies are on the United States. So uh, th- there's, a, there's a great deal that China could do. You, you know, when, when you look at this, the criticism is also, hey, now – the, the Trump administration is essentially doing what China has done for a long time, where when when uh, foreign companies come in, they demand uh, joint ventures, they demand access to their intellectual property, um, they put very severe restrictions on on those foreign partners working with Chinese companies. Now uh, there's a sense that that this is essentially what what President Trump is doing, and it's really going to poison the well. So. Um, uh, certainly um, grounds for China to uh, retaliate um, very hard against American companies. Mm. 
And is that the expectation, uh, Nick, um, that we are going to get some serious retaliation as opposed for, you know, some of these things maybe that are, are not that impactful? Is there is there concern within the State Department that, you know, there could be something really unexpectedly and this could really ratchet up? Well, I, I think there's a hope among some of those folks that China will exercise some restraint until after the election and the belief that um, uh, a Biden administration would be a little more willing to engage. But, you know, one of the theories I've heard is very simply that, listen, when you hit China so much on so many fronts, you actually lower uh, their desire to uh, exercise any restraint because the feeling is, well, no matter what we do, they're just going to go after us anyhow. And, and there are some people who say that's exactly why China has clamped down on, on Hong Kong, that they felt there was nothing they would be able to do to uh, avoid U.S. punishment. Uh, so, but right now, it, I think it's, it's there's really a hope that that China will will hold off. But as they've shown, um, they they've retaliated in the past and and are almost certainly going to do so again very soon. Yeah, I mean, you have to imagine that with the potential for administration change in coming months, China can just have some fun now if it wants, if if it <laughs> takes that sort of attack. I want to pivot, though, Nick, to another story that's been percolating. The Trump administration's State Department lifting the travel warning literally for everywhere. So, you know, if you want now as an American and you abide by the quarantine rules of the other countries, you can travel. What was the significance of this? Was this, a, a, you know, a potentially a Trump-directed directive? Would the State Department have done this under any other president? Well, I asked them that yesterday when they unveiled this this new approach, and they said, listen, no, there was no pressure uh, from the administration. Uh, the State Department cast this as a simple recognition that coronavirus, the coronavirus pandemic is being brought under control in some countries. And when you had this blanket, it was a non-binding travel advisor, but when you had this blanket not, uh, advisory saying, don't go anywhere in the world, coronavirus is so out of control, it's incredibly dangerous, uh, that wasn't really an accurate reflection of what's going on. I mean, you have a lot of countries now that have brought it under control. New Zealand, for example, uh, and certain uh, you know other countries. So um, they say what they're doing is just a more accurate reflection of the risk that's well, out there. Of course, the, the, iron the irony is that Americans aren't really allowed to go a lot of places. I mean, there's still a European travel ban against Americans. So they may be free to go, but uh, they're not going to be let in. Well, that's the thing. I mean, <laughs> I guess the State Department is considering risk to Americans. It's not considering risk of Americans, correct? <laughs> that's, a that's a great way to put it. Yes. Um, the, the, I mean, the State Department, it's, it's a travel advisory for American citizens. Another reporter on, on a call we had yesterday with, with officials said, well, what would you rate the United States if you're Level advisories are level one being, you know, no threat to level four being do not travel, you know, Afghanistan or Somalia type uh, conditions. What's your threat assessment for the United States? They, of course, refused uh, to bite <laughs> on that. But certainly um, if, if they were assessing the United States, we have, I think, now the second most uh, cases, every new cases every day behind India um, uh, contributed a quarter of the world's uh, cases, um, the threat would be considered very high. Uh, and a lot of people do not want to travel here. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. an ironic moment. <laughs> Nick Wadhams, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate uh, your thoughts. Uh, Nick Wadhams covers the State Department today. Getting the update 
uh, for what's going on with China. And, and, and Vani, it just seems like almost every day uh, we have a new piece of news on one side or the other between the U.S. and China in terms of <coughs> ratcheting up the well, <coughs> the pressure between the two countries. It's funny because you've got soft pressure and hard pressure, right? And I suppose you know everyone in the world wants the hard pressure part of things, the hard power tools to be avoided. So soft pressure can be you know just yep. fine. But the problem <laughs> is it only takes one move, and uh, you know at some point China just won't take this anymore. I think. Today is Jobs Day. The U.S. labor market uh, did continue to regain ground in July, uh, beating expectations for jobs added. But the pace uh, was at a slower rate uh, than previous months. And unemployment rate stubbornly sticks at 10.2%. That's down from 11%, but still 10.2%. So there's something in there, I guess, for everybody. Let's see uh, what Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg News, thinks. Mike, what were your key takeaways here? Well, I think the uh, jobs report is not bad, put it that way. I don't, it's not great because even though we beat the number of jobs estimated, it's still less than half the number of jobs that were created in June and significantly lower than the number in May. And we still have, according to the Labor Department, uh, at least uh, 17 million people who are out of work and in the labor force. So we still have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. That said, uh, we did gain jobs. Uh Again, you have to caveat this by saying this measures from the middle of June to the middle of July, didn't measure the rest of July. And so the anecdotal evidence seems to be that we maybe have lost jobs since then. Yeah, it's one of these reports where, you know, your eyes and your brain have to work differently because obviously, you know, the manufacturing jobs have already come back uh, to the extent that they were going to come back. We didn't get that much gain in manufacturing this month, 26,000 in July. So it's obviously the service industries, Michael, but it doesn't seem to be the case when you look around as you walk home or as you walk around that there are many service industry jobs back either. But I guess around the country there are. Well, the the, the country opened at different ways and different times. And in many of the Sunbelt states, they opened up restaurants, not just outdoors as we have in New York, but indoors as well. Now that led to a lot of pandemic problems, and many of them had to reclose again. So people who went on to payrolls went off. There were about 600,000 people uh, who were hired in the uh, restaurant and bar category during uh, July. And the question now is how many of those people still have those jobs that they had at the time the survey was taken? So, Mike, you know, this jobs number comes out, I'm not sure coincidentally, with the backdrop of more discussions in Congress with the White House uh, about more fiscal stimulus here. From an economic perspective, how critical is it that we get another meaningful round of fiscal stimulus here? Very critical. Uh, I mean, you can just sort of do the math. Uh, There are 30 million people, the Labor Department tells us, getting some form of unemployment benefits. So 30 million times $600 a week is a significant amount of cash that will come out of the economy. Well, it's coming out of the economy now. The longer they take to replace at least part of it, the bigger the hit to consumer spending power is going to be. And since consumer spending is three quarters of the economy, it's going to be a significant problem for the economy if we don't have that kind of replacement money, because at this point, uh, we don't have all those people working, so their salaries are not being paid. It also hurts state 
and local governments because there's tax money that's not going to be collected from the sales that won't be made. And we know they're already in trouble. And if they don't get additional assistance, they're probably going to be laying off workers. So, Well, and there's data that we don't usually see that sort of, you know, is going under the radar to an extent and might be helping in, in this environment. So, for example, an estimated 27% of adults in the U.S. missed their rent or mortgage payment for July. Presumably, some of that payment went on things like food or, you know, supplies from Home Depot where we're seeing, you know, sales rise. It doesn't mean that there's enough money out there, does it? No, it doesn't. <laughs> there's definitely not enough money out there. Uh, even though I think it, the, the figure that was estimated is 68% of the people who were getting unemployment were getting more than they made on the job. But uh, there's no evidence that that kept them from going back to work. There's just no jobs for them to go back to is the problem. And so if this continues, it's going to be a major hit to the economy. And the eviction thing, um, you know, there's there's questions about what Donald Trump can do by executive order or not. But uh, we, we know landlords are already filing to evict people from their homes, and that only exacerbates the problem. It's hard to have a job if you don't have a place to live. And the Fed, uh, Mike, kind of going to be status quo for them? They can't do anything more at this yep. point. Interest rates are as low as they're going to get. And so uh, the Fed is just going to be committed to finding ways to make sure interest rates are going to stay low. But I right mean, now, that's of, not a problem. Short of helicopter money, Mike, I mean, is there any possibility of literally just dropping money from the skies at this point? Um, <laughs> there's an anecdote that says the money is too heavy for helicopters to carry. <laughs> but uh, that's what we're doing, basically. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the helicopter money aspect of it is that the Fed would just buy up the bonds and get rid of them. And so there wouldn't be a, a debt level. Uh, that doesn't appear likely to, to happen. But the Congress is talking about just giving people money. That's yeah. what they did in the first round. And that's what they did back in uh, the financial crisis and the post-financial crisis uh, time as well. Michael McKee, thank you, international politics and economics correspondent. Much, much appreciated. A lot to happen over the next 24 hours. And of course, President Trump promising to do something unilaterally if nothing happens. But of course, we also just got word that Congress can sue the president. Now, it may not be on this particular issue, but an appeals court has said Congress has the right to sue the White House. So we'll see. We'll see. There's a power struggle going on and uh, presumably something will happen before the weekend. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.